I've heard it said that if you really want to understand someone, how they think, what they love, who they want to be, then take their phone when they're not looking and scroll through their Spotify playlists. <laughs> You'll learn everything you need to know, and you might be very surprised. Well, if you were to take my phone when I wasn't looking and open Spotify, somewhere near the top of my most frequently played songs would be a song called Funeral by Phoebe Bridgers. It's a song about the death of one of her close friends. I'm singing at a funeral tomorrow, it begins, for a kid a year older than me. I've been talking to his dad. It makes me so sad. And when I think too much about it, I can't breathe. It's a song about heartbreak and loyalty. Have you ever felt like that at a funeral? When you're performing a kind of goodbye, but you know full well that the person who died will live on in your thoughts and haunt your dreams? This was the state of the women that we read about in Luke chapter 24. They were particularly devoted to our Lord. We read earlier in Luke that they had walked side by side with him the 80 or so miles from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they stuck around after the great crowd which gathered around Jesus' crucifixion had dispersed. They were the only ones who followed Joseph of Arimathea when he took Jesus down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. They were the last to leave on Good Friday. They were the first to arrive on Easter Sunday. Heartbroken and loyal. They came carrying the spices they had prepared. After Jesus died, his body had been wrapped in linens and placed on a ledge in the tomb. Now, it needed to be anointed with ointments and perfumed with spices. Why? It gets hot in that part of the world. The cave was not air-conditioned, and Jesus' tomb would have been presumably used again. Other bodies would have been placed on other ledges before his flesh would have rotted away. Filling the tomb with sweet perfume was a common courtesy. What happened, of course, was not the sensing of a body in the beginning stages of decomposition. Verses 2 and 3, there's a neat uh, parallel there. The women found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Luke's voice as an author is dispassionate, neutral, matter-of-fact, but the whole Christian thing stands or falls on the veracity of his words. Christians believe that something happened on Easter, something definite, something tangible, something somatic, more than a parable of good triumphing over evil, our spring emerging out of winter. Christians believe that on Easter, 
the Siamese twin of sin and death, was overthrown in the resurrection of Jesus. His lacerated, hyperextended, asphyxiated body was not just resuscitated, it was remade by a power never before seen on earth. Have you all heard the, or read the poem by John Updike, Seven Stanzas at Easter? Preachers quote it nearly every Easter Sunday, and here I go. <laughs> and make no mistake, he says, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules renet, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. I only want to talk for like 13 more minutes, and I want to say two things. I want to say something about faith and something about hope. What believing in the resurrection might involve and what possible difference it might make. First, faith. The women entered the empty tomb, but they did not immediately grasp its significance. We read in verse 4, they were perplexed by what they saw, confounded, stymied. Are you familiar with the idea of a liminal state? It sounds like a particular type of blog, I suppose. It's the idea that an old way or an old framework or worldview is displaced, but what comes next is ambiguous. It's a period of transition, and it's a very disorienting place to be in. This is the situation the women find themselves in. It's, it's funny. In Matthew and Mark's version of the story, you get the impression that the angels were waiting for the women in the tomb, but Luke makes clear that there was a moment of darkness beforehand, of confusion, of perplexity. Suddenly, like a flash of lightning, two figures appear, and they explain the situation in the form of a gentle reproof. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He has risen. And in verse 8, we see the women remembering Jesus' words and returning from the tomb, speaking of what they saw. They went from confusion to clarity to uncoerced evangelism. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I wonder, though, how many of us can relate to the perplexity experienced by the two Marys, Joanna and the other women with them. I wonder how many of us live in some form of a liminal state. By that I mean liking the idea of Christianity, maybe the elegance of the tradition or the, the moral life that it inspires or the salutary effects it has upon your kids. Maybe we're even comfortable saying it's at least as good as any other way to organize a life. But our perplexity and uncertainty keeps us from going all the way. Like, how do I give myself wholeheartedly to something that I'm, I'm really not sure is true? Or 
Maybe I can say it's true in some abstract sense, but I honestly don't seem to care. Well, there are a lot of popular level books written to help build trust in the New Testament accounts of the resurrection. Some of them are pretty helpful. There is a lot to be said, for example, about how quickly written records of Jesus' resurrection began to be written down and spread throughout the Roman world. And on the other hand, it is very hard to explain the birth of the church without something like the resurrection happening. You know, the burden of proof goes both ways. It's not like you can prove it in a laboratory. But I think you can say that the resurrection as it's presented in the New Testament is at least plausible, and therefore accepting it as true does not mean like crucifying your brain or turning a blind eye to reality. But, and this is what I want to say, isn't the experience of the women in this story a vivid reminder that such an approach is inadequate by itself? As if to say, it was not historical evidence presented before the tribunal of quote-unquote impartial reason that convinced them to believe. It was a spiritual experience. They had heard Jesus' predictions with their own ears. They had seen the empty tomb with their own eyes. But left to themselves, they did not believe. It took an epistemic apocalypse, an unveiling of truth before their mind's eye for them to see. I cannot provide such an experience. Peter can. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Neither can Peter. But we can point you to the one who is able. Jesus is risen, and I want to say we can see him with our ears. In the word of God, we hear the creative, unimpotent, grace-filled voice of God saying, let there be light. And we see the glory of the risen sun with the eyes of our heart. So, you know, I think the implication of this, especially to those of us who are perplexed in one way or another, is to not let our doubt, legitimate doubt, cast a pall over our entire life in God. Pray, listen, sing, come to the table, especially when you're perplexed. It's through encounter with God that we come to believe in the reality of God. And for some of us, that is so self-evident. But for others of us, it's a lifelong struggle. But God is glorified all the same. What does Paul say? Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Faith. Now a word about hope. Easter is about Jesus. Easter is also about us. Because the promise of Easter is that what is now true of the Lord will one day be true 
of all who die in the Lord. Our bodies, whether they're gradually expiring or prematurely malfunctioning, will be resurrected too. This is the point that Paul makes in our reading from 1 Corinthians 15. In verses 20 and 23, he uses a strange term to refer to Jesus. He calls him the first fruits. Some of you may know that phrase has a rich Old Testament history, but I don't think Paul is really doing that. I think he's just using the concept as a simple metaphor. In the same way that the first ears of corn, for example, signal a larger crop still to come, the resurrected Jesus is God's first fruits, God's own pledge that there will be a harvest of those who will likewise be raised. And the logic is temporal. Jesus is the first of many, and it's representative. We will be what he is now. One of my favorite cultural moments from last year was the release of the Star is Born trailer and the subsequent memes. I learned this week, through some thorough internet research, that the trailer for Avengers Endgame, get this, was viewed 289 million times, 24 hours after being released. As I speak, people are writing dissertation-length Twitter threads on the new Rise of Skywalker trailer. Most of us are pretty emotionally disconnected from agriculture and first fruits, but I think we can appreciate the idea that a coming attraction can be almost more significant than the larger reality to which it points. And Jesus' resurrection is an announcement, a demonstration, and a promise of the destiny that awaits all who put their trust in him. And we remind ourselves of this same truth every week when we confess our faith. As Peter mentioned, we're celebrating baptisms this Sunday. And so we'll say the Apostles' Creed, not the Nicene. And it's almost more startling in this regard because as opposed to merely looking for the resurrection of the dead, we profess our belief in the resurrection of the body. I love what Rowan Williams says about the shock of those two final words. If we have, as most of us do, a vague idea that religion commits us to believing in life after death, and that this involves a sort of shadowy reproduction of ourselves floating up towards the sky, this phrase gives us a bit of a jolt. Do we actually want this particular lump of bone and fat and hair that we know so well to have an eternal future? <laughs> and isn't there something, well, rather creepy about such language? We don't quite know what our resurrected future will entail. Here's what we do know. God came to encounter us in this world of material bodies as a material body. And God continues to use material things and material bodies to reveal who and what he is. Therefore, we can never suppose that our life with God will sidestep our material, out, material, our material life. <laughs> the Bible 
It talks very little about life with God in heaven. It talks a lot about the renewal of heaven and earth, about new creation. And the whole point of me telling you this is because I think that story about a renewed heaven and earth gives us much more hope in the present. At least it gives me much more hope in the present. And here's why. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that I loved that Phoebe Bridger song. And part of the reason I, I come back to it time and time again is because I have firsthand experience with some truly terrible funerals. In January 2016 and October 2017, my wife Megan and I had funerals for Luke and Elizabeth, children we lost to respectively to preterm labor and stillbirth. And so when I say funerals, I mean funerals, like bodies that have to be buried. And so when I cross myself at the mention of the resurrection of the dead, I do not think about a shadowy reproduction of myself floating up towards the sky. I think about seeing my kids. At the end of the city of God, Augustine, he wonders if, if infants who have died will, not, will rise not in the diminutive body in which they perished, but will receive by the marvelous and rapid operation of God that body which time by a slower process would have given them. You know, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. We have no way of knowing. But it, it's fun to think about, and the point is the same. Now, I know that my struggle is particular to me, and I do not want to say that the promise of Easter is the restoration of the nuclear family or something. You all have had different kinds of losses. And what I want to say is that Easter is nothing less than the redemption of all that you have lost, the healing of all of your pain, the mending of all of your brokenness. And that is a better story than ethereal floating up in the sky because of resurrection. Loss is not forgotten. There's this great line, Arcade Fire Song, talks about heaven as a chloroform sky and clouds made of ambient. That's not the promise of the gospel. It's not forgetting what was lost. It's recovering it. It's getting it back. And that gives me hope. All right, let's land the plane. Jesus is not just a figure from history. His resurrection is not a metaphor. He has risen. He is alive. And maybe you're perplexed about him. He's not perplexed about you. He sees you and he loves you. And through his death and resurrection, one day all the funerals are going to end. And our songs of heartbreak and loyalty will become shouts of laughter and joy. He will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the miracle of Easter. 
And I pray that your spirit would be present among us in such a way that it would generate faith and create hope. Amen.